Imagine taking a, yeah, there we go. Imagine taking a, uh, a dart and having a wall, and I was going to illustrate this with a, with a kid this morning, but unfortunately, when I opened my darts this morning from Amazon, they must not make these things with a point anymore, so um, couldn't, couldn't really do the illustration, so we'll have to use our imagination. Imagine the wall, and imagine that you take the, the dart, and I say, okay, I want you to hit the bullseye, and there's not a bullseye on the wall, but you take the dart, and you throw it against the wall, it sticks into the wall, and then you grab a pencil, a sharpie, which I have one here somewhere, and then you begin to paint around the dart a bullseye, color in the middle, and then you turn around and look very much full of pride and say, wow, look at that, perfect, perfect shot. It's like, do that again. You take a second dart, and you throw it, and you do the other th- that same thing, you paint your bullseye on the wall, and you're like, two for two, right dead center in the bullseye. I'm a pretty good shot, aren't I? Well, of course, that'd be silly to even think that or illustrate it and know that obviously there's a bigger object lesson here. So what is it? I think when it comes to our spiritual lives, we're guilty of this oftentimes. Even though many of you know what the bullseye is, and we're going to see it in this passage, and actually Stephen read it just a second ago. No, thank you. I I assumed you read the passage ahead of time, yeah. Um, That oftentimes we want to fill in a lot of other things into there. We look at our coworkers and we say, you know, that guy, he's unfaithful to his wife. Man, I've always been faithful to my wife. Bullseye. I hit the bullseye there. And that's a great thing, obviously, being faithful. Or you say, well, I have been so consistent in church lately. Man, we get our family up, and we come to church on Sundays, and, and this is like four or five weeks in a row we've been there. Man, we're doing really, really good. Man, we're hitting the bullseye. That's pretty much like taking the Sharpie and drawing the bullseye on it and saying, look, I'm hitting the mark. I'm hitting the mark. But that's not the bullseye. The bullseye is found in Mark chapter 12. And as Stephen read this morning, we're going to read this passage, and it tells us what the bullseye is. And it's what Stephen said, love God, love your neighbor. That's the bullseye. All the other commands, all the other laws, everything hinges upon that. Jesus said, that just brings it all together. And so as we look at this passage today, try to think about how oftentimes you're coloring in that bullseye in your life, other than really, truly making your life about loving God. God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So let's read this passage today together. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And you remember Jesus has been in conflict in and around the temple area now. We've looked at this for three weeks. And seeing that he answered them well, ask him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe just said to him, you're right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and that there is no one other beside him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, 
and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. We'll look at this passage. Father God, I pray that you'll open our hearts to your word today, God. I pray that the believers in here, the Holy Spirit will reveal truth, not just more information and more knowledge, but God, truth that changes everything about us, that we can truly, truly, through the strength of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus, we can live our lives with that kind of intensity and focus. And God, I pray that you'll help those who are, are struggling here and we just all resonate with the words of the song we just sang that prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave you. And God, may your grace overwhelm us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so as I said, over the last three weeks, we've seen these attempted traps for Jesus. The different groups have come up to Jesus and asked him questions, trying to trick him. What's the purpose? What are they trying to get out of this trickery? A couple things, two goals, at least one of these two, needed to happen. One, they needed the people, the mass of people who looked at Jesus as now more than a rabbi. Many saw him as a Messiah, as the king, as someone who was going to save Israel from the Romans. They, they saw Jesus in this light. And so the masses were following Jesus. They were supporting Jesus. So there's no way that the religious insiders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the groups we've looked at, no way that they could arrest Jesus at this point because they were afraid of the crowds. The second thing, they would love to see, if that wouldn't happen, they would love to see the Romans recognize Jesus as a threat. To see Jesus as potentially causing a disturbance, causing the people to rebel, an insurrection against Rome, and therefore Jesus would be arrested by the Romans, probably tried for treason, and put to death. And so that was their goal in these questions they were asking, these tracks, traps that they were setting. And so now we see a different person, a, a scribe, who was part of this Sanhedrin, this body of uh, leaders, like the Supreme Court, so to speak, and these people were in charge of the laws and in charge of um, the scriptures and in charge of uh, controlling as much as the Romans would give them the day-to-day -day activities of the Jewish people. And so these guys were the theologians. You might refer to them as lawyers because they were experts in the Mosaic law. They were experts in the Old Testament. And so the scribe comes to Jesus, and unlike the other people we've seen come to him, this guy may be sincere as opposed to the others who were just trying to trap him. And so apparently he's been impressed by Jesus and he's, the way he's handled these questions, these traps. And so he comes, and in verse 28 it says, And seeing that he answered them well, so he asked them. So the scribe wants him to weigh in on something that's very important and, and very debated during that time period. And he says, Which commandment is the most important of all? Which one of these commandments, Jesus, all these laws, which one is the most important? So what he's getting to is down to a, a matter of what is most important which thing do you value most what you go and grab first and most from the law revealing priorities some years ago probably five or six years ago my brother-in-law and sister-in-law michelle's sister 
her, their house burned down in Tallahassee. And uh, it was probably 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night, and we got the call on a Saturday night that their house was on fire. And so we rushed down to Tallahassee um, to support them, just see how bad it was and to help them any way we could. Well, when we got there, there were numerous firefighters, numerous fire trucks. But my brother-in-law, Jason, um, obviously when you wake up, if you've ever been through a situation like this, the first thing you would do as a parent is you would go and grab your children, obviously. That's your priority. I mean, nothing else is hitting your mind other than, man, we got to get everybody out of here safely. But then after that, you begin to make some other decisions. You look at this, and you begin to think, okay, I've got to get a few things out of this house that are valuable to me. There's a few things that are not replaceable. And you begin, and my brother-in-law ran into the burning house before the firefighters got there, ran into the burning house, and he grabbed a few things from the house. Priorities, right? Priorities. So that's what Jesus and this guy, the scribe, are getting at. Jesus, what are you going to grab from the law? What, what is the most valuable? What is the most important? What is the one thing that we have to hold on to? You see, the scribes had determined there were 613 laws in the Old Testament Mosaic Law. And one of their favorite things to do was to debate and discuss which one was the greatest? What Jesus does, he directs this man's attention to the most fundamental summary of human obligation that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. Found in the book of Deuteronomy, and it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, uh, and Jesus repeats this almost verbatim the first part. He says, Jesus answers, the most important is here, which is Hebrew Shema, which is the, the word, what they call this saying, the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the first thing Jesus does before he gets to the commandment, he directs them to the nature and character of God. Who is God? Rightly, there is one God. His name's Yahweh. His name uh, in Exodus, when he revealed himself to Moses, God did. He said, I am who I am. So to Moses, he was saying, I'm self-existent. He says, I'm unique. I alone am God in this world. There's not three, four, ten, twenty gods, all these nations around who are worshiping gods. No, there's one God, and I am God. So he, he points to the uniqueness and character of God, who God is, so that he, they know that he is pointing to the correct God. There's not more than one. There's one God. He's unique. And then he says, this God, verse 30, and you shall love this Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So we are to love him for who he is in himself. All right, I know that seems very plain, but think about it for a second. We are to love God for who he is in himself. See, we're tempted to love God for what he does for us, the good things he does, for his gifts. We can even love, uh, love him for certain attributes that he has. I love God for his wisdom. I love God for his mercy. I love God for his grace. But he says, we don't love God for the things he does. We don't love God simply because of these characteristics. We love him for who he is within himself. Now, this is a, a point that's so critical because you will never, ever grow as a disciple until you begin to growing in your understanding that we are to love God simply because he's awesome, he's amazing, and he's worthy of total affection. 
And if you're a newer Christian, you may not be able to wrap your head fully around that, even if you've been a Christian for a long time. Sometimes we, we know that that's a daunting task because God is, is so amazing. He's so awesome. He's so huge. And, and you know, one thing that's helped me, and, and as we walk through Mark during these many weeks, one thing that helps me in this area to love God more is to focus in on God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. You know, as we look at Jesus, God with skin, so to speak, we are able to really grasp more of God's character in a way that we can kind of grab hold of with our mind and to make sense of with our mind. And if you're newer to faith or this is, you're not been around church or, uh, or the Bible much, it's important that you recognize that God is one, as it said, but the Trinity three in one, not three gods in one God, but Jesus was the very nature, true God from true God, God with skin on in the, for, for humanity. He came for us. Now just a few verses, Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What's that mean? God with us. God with us. Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. God with skin. Not in another God, but God with skin. First John 1, I'm sorry, John 1, 14. The word, which was Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. So God walked on earth. And I've said this at least a half dozen times during this study on Mark. These people who studied the Bible, studied Scripture, knew Scripture, memorized Scripture, God was standing right in front of them, conversing with them, and they rejected him. They could not accept the fact that Jesus was God because they didn't know God. If you knew Jesus, you would know God. If you knew God, you would know Jesus, Jesus said. But they rejected him. And so I think there's so much we can learn kind of, kind of practically, like the, how the rubber meets the road, so to speak, in our, in our lives as we look at Jesus and how he reacts and deals with and his wisdom he uses and things he says, how we can learn the character and nature of God through the person of Jesus as we look at his words and as we examine his life. Because as John said, the word became flesh. The word is the message of God, the full message of God. The revelation of God comes in the form of Jesus Christ. And while we have other revelation, we'll look at some of those in a minute, the ultimate final revelation is Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that. The prophets and the law, you had those. But now in these last days, he's spoken by his son. The final revelation. So sometimes when we, we begin to struggle and we look at the character of God and we say, wow, you know, I, I just can't comprehend your greatness, which we never will be able to. Look into the Gospels. Study with us in Mark and read it on your own. See the life of Christ and learn from Christ. And then he says, we're to love God in this way that's is all-encompassing. Just totality. It's, it's just everything. It's total. Look, love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Our whole being, our entire being. Let's break that down for a second. I think this will be helpful. Let me start with the mind, okay? Love God with all your mind. 
I'm afraid so many times in our culture that people want to love God with their emotions, which we should do that, at the expense of what I'm going to call intellectual suicide. There's so much in the South particularly, uh, there's so much just what I call folk theology, just beliefs that you've just inherited and passed down. You heard your mom and your grandma talk about over the years, but they're really not a lot of them rooted in Scripture and in God's revelation through Jesus Christ. And so a lot of times we just don't put a lot of intellectual work into understanding our faith. And it's just not enough to have these sentimental religious thoughts. Loving God with our minds involves coming to conclusions about God and about his word, world based on his revelation of himself through observation and through careful reflection. And so we, we invest our minds into this love for God. We invest our mind into it. Because we need to know why we believe what we believe, and we need to be able to defend our faith. 1 Peter 3.15, reading out of the New Living Translation, says, You must worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. You... Be always be ready to explain the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Always be ready to give a clear and intelligent reason for why you know and follow Jesus. Are you able to do that? Are you able to give a clear response to those who ask you, what, why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? Why do you follow God? Are you able to do that? I've said this numerous times since I've been a pastor, and I'll keep saying it for years to come. For some reason, Christians and unbelievers fall into the trap of not being able to explain the simple gospel. And I, I, I firmly believe it's what 2 Corinthians says, that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel displayed in the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. That Satan, it's, this is spiritual warfare, that you ask people who've heard the simple gospel again and again and again, okay, tell me, how do you have a relationship with God? And they begin to list off their merits, their works, what they do, what they don't do. Not the bullseye stuff, right? Not the bullseye. A lot of other things that we want to paint. And, 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 and it just baffles me. And I've told you for years with student ministry how that I could just preach the gospel and then pull a student aside individually and say, okay, tell me, what, how do you come to faith in, in Jesus? And they're like, well, I, I hope I'm good enough. Or, you know, I, I was baptized. Or, you know, I was confirmed. Or this or that. And there's a lot of other things. And sometimes these things may, in their mind, be pointing to the right thing. But for some reason, they lack the ability to just state the simple gospel. It's all Jesus, what he did on the cross. He took my sin and gave me his righteousness. And I place my faith in him. And so even as believers, I think that Satan blinds our minds. Imagine this scenario, honestly, imagine this. Imagine that your employer sends you to a seminar for every week, one time a week, an hour a week, for five years, simply so you could learn the mission and vision of your company. And so week in and week out, you go and you sit and hear the, the mission and the vision of your co company being recited again and again. 
And after five years, your employer, your boss brings you in, and he says, okay, Joe, tell me, what's the vision of this company? He's like, I never actually thought you would ask me that. Yeah, I, like, uh, hold on, um, can I call my supervisor and ask him to, to explain that? Because I just, I'm not sure. I don't feel confident. I don't, I don't know if I could say it right. What if I get it wrong? Uh, oh, my goodness. But that's what we do. Somebody asks us about our faith, and we say, hey, let me give you my pastor's cell phone number. He can, he can tell you. Or come to church with me, and you'll hear, you'll hear about this. Or let me talk, let you talk to this elder. I mean, he's really knowledgeable. You've been sitting here week after week, year after year, and when it comes to the gospel, the simple gospel, we freeze up. We're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. That wouldn't fly in our workplaces at all. Why does it work in our faith? Peter says, be prepared to give an answer. Engage your mind in this. It's so important, especially as we live in a culture where atheism continues to take stronger and stronger root. I mean, there's more and more atheists, people who reject God straight out or agnostics who say, you just can't know whether there's truly a God or not. My son, Colin, who's at UGA, he, in his uh, anthropology class, they were having a debate last week on intelligent design. Is there a creator God, or is it just evolution? And he had to begin to prepare for that, and he said one of the girls in his little group, just a group of, a small group, they broke him out in little groups, had no knowledge of Jesus and faith. He grew up in Georgia and, and had no knowledge of those things. Another family in this church here today told me that their daughter at University of Georgia was separated out from the rest of the class because she believed in God and she believed in Jesus and she believed in, that God created the world and she was separated out and embarrassed over the fact that she believed that. And this is in a conservative, Christian-friendly university, I would call it, compared to a lot of them around the, uh, around the, the, the nation. And so we need to be able to defend our faith, not just by being able to give the gospel, which should be easily come off our lips any time and every time that we even think there's an opportunity for that, but also to make a case with our mind why we love God. Why do we love Jesus? I, I'm going to give you four things, and I think these are simple enough for everyone, but they make total sense and they're easy to remember. People know by intuition that bare nothing cannot produce any real thing, okay? People just know that by intuition, that stuff doesn't just pop into existence, okay? It doesn't. It doesn't pop into existence. You can go and you can watch debates and you can see these atheists try to defend their cases, but at the end of the day, they want to describe, and I mentioned this last week, they want to describe nothing as something and make an argument for things that are just silly, something from nothing. Everybody knows intuitively that that can't happen. And then and the second thing is that part of this, and Romans 1 talks about this, we'll read it, this in a second, is that we live in this universe and this world and this earth that are so precisely fine-tuned that there's no way that this just happened by accident. That this design, the, 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 the universe, the world that we live in, the complexity and the delicacy of it is, is beyond 
description more or less just happened by accident. Listen to Romans 1, what Paul says. He says, let me start reading in verse 19. I, think, I just put a few verses on the screen. But he, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to people, because God has shown it to them. He's revealed himself, his general revelation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, give thanks to him. But they became fruitful in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And it goes on to say they exchanged the wisdom of God for this foolishness. And they begin to worship the created things rather than the creator. And then it talks about how it just went downhill from there. Then it just sin and just indulgence and pleasure. Why? Why do people want to reject God? They want to reject this because they want to do what they want to do. I want to live the way I want to live and don't tell me there's a God who I have to answer to one day. I'm just going to hold my ears and close my eyes and live my life just with hedonism, just whatever way I want, because it's much more enjoyable to me. But let me just say this. Honestly, and, and look, I'm preaching to the choir here, I know, but this is also to prepare you for future conversations with people. There are so many more reasons to believe than not to believe. People will say this, it takes more faith not to believe. That's so true. And faith in God is not just wishful thinking. It's not just blind. And some people say, well, faith is blind. No, it's, it's not believing without a reason. It's having confidence in something, even though you haven't experienced it with your senses. You can't touch God. You can't see God. You can't smell God. But you believe it because the, the evidence is overwhelming to the fact that you know what? This makes much more sense than the other option. Biblical faith is the act of believing in something unseen for which we have good reasons, sound reasons to believe. And so as you're talking to your friends, don't be embarrassed by this. Walk them to the point where look, it's just very, very common sense that there's a creator, God, that exists. And, and this fine-tuning thing is incredible, the fact that how precise our world, and I won't bore you with a bunch of facts and details here. You can look these up for yourself. But I came across this illustration in a book that I was reading. I thought it was so good. It said, imagine that you come across this self-enclosed habitat on Mars. Sometime in the future, you travel to Mars, and there you come across this habitat that exists. And life inside this, this thing is just thriving. I mean, people are just thriving. It's, it's going great. And you begin to wander around this complex, and you come across this master control room, and you walk in, and the guy that's work, uh, working there, he says, absolutely don't touch any of these gauges. You can look, but don't touch any of these gauges. And there's numerous gauges there. And he says, if you just slightly alter even just one of these gauges, just every so little, you will kill all living things in this complex. And you say, really? Uh, even that one? Yes, that one too. How about that one? Yes, that one, and that one, and that one. That's how precisely fine-tuned our world is. There needs to be just enough heat, oxygen, moisture, air pressure, and so on for us to survive on this earth. 
and no more likely would you walk onto Mars and think, wow, it's amazing what happened by accident here that this thing just showed up one day. Interesting. And, and what about these controls? Oh, no, I just, we just came here one day, and they were all set exactly the way they're set. And, and it was all already here. It just kind of like must have just popped into existence and, and fine-tuned exactly the way it needed to be so life would thrive. Oh, interesting, huh? No, nobody would believe that. And the silliness, the silliness. So to believe that there's a God, you don't have to check your brain at the door. You don't have to be silly and backwoods and ancient and old. It's just common sense. So this gets you to what we will call theism. It gets you to a point where you can walk somebody to knowing that there's a God that exists. We haven't got to Jesus yet. We'll get there in a second. But it gets you to, hey, there's got to be a creator out there. There's got to be a God out there. And another book that I was reading over the last few weeks, um, it used this illustration. It was so good I, because it, it was really personal to me because yesterday I was out on a run and, um, or the day before yesterday, and, and I, I felt this little rock in my shoe. And it was just irritating. I was, I was running. It was like, oh, man, it's, it's so irritating. And, and when I got finished and looked in my shoe, I mean, it was this, this, the smallest little, I mean, you couldn't even hardly see it, the smallest little of pebble in my shoe, but it was enough just to, every step that I took with my left foot, it was just like, I, I, I knew it was there, I couldn't get over it. And that's what you're trying to do with these logical arguments. And some people say, we don't need it, all we need is the Bible. No, God has given you a mind to use to reason and logic to use to help those. And Paul says, you know what, I, I want to convince people. When he went to, Mar, uh, to Mars Hill there in Athens, what did he do? He began to use logic to explain to them there was a God that existed. And this God was Jesus. And so you need to be able to defend your faith. And, 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 and it might just be putting that little rock in their shoe where they're like, Ugh, I, I hate that that guy told me that because now I'm thinking about it all the time that this couldn't have happened by accident. There's a God that exists out there. And so where do you go from there? How do you go from theism to the God of the Bible? Here's what I like to do. I like the very next thing is to go to the resurrection of Jesus. The historical record. You believe in Abraham Lincoln? Absolutely. You believe in Alexander the Great? Sure. All right. Well, we have plenty of documentation and plenty of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus Christ after he rose from the dead pretty amazing right that this guy jesus claimed to be god they put him to death but he didn't stay dead in fact he predicted his death and resurrection ahead of time and he rose again on the third day just like he said he would so i take them to the resurrection overwhelming eyewitness account and then to get from there you got to get to the scriptures you got to get to be able to fill in the blanks and so, to me, that's the easy next step is everyone who wrote the scriptures was an eyewitness of the resurrection or they were writing on account of somebody else who was an eyewitness, except for Paul, who had a, an account and an interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And if you say, well, that wasn't that really valid, that's not the same. Well, all the other apostles and the eyewitnesses, they vouched for Paul. They said that Paul was writing scripture, that what he was saying came from God and so you have eyewitness accounts writing scripture guys who had no reason or motivation to make this stuff up just simple fishermen common guys who 
brought on martyrdom ultimately on themselves because they believed in Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus because why? They actually saw him after he rose again. They touched him. They interacted with him. And so you want to engage your mind loving God with all your mind? Know why you believe what you believe. Have an answer ready for those who will ask you. I, I promise you, if you're living, and we'll get to this in a second, but if you're living for God, there's some people going to ask you. There's some people going to wonder, what's, why is your life different? Why do, why do you forgive your enemies? Why do you love those who treat you bad? Man, I, the boss treats you bad for no reason whatsoever, but, you, man, you just keep loving that guy. Why? Well, it's not perfect. Sometimes I have some bad thoughts about him, but, you know, Jesus gives me that ability. Really? Tell me about that. So be prepared to give an answer. And then the next thing he says is, let's look at the, the idea of that loving God with all your heart and with all your soul. You know, many people attempt to follow God just with their intellect, only with their intellect, and they suppress any emotion whatsoever. And I say suppress because I don't think you can love something without being emotional at some level about it. All right, I know that a lot of it's cultural the churches you grew up in, the places that you've been, you've worshipped over the years, you've become comfortable with a certain expression. But how do you love something without getting somewhat emotional about it? I mean, how do you love a football team as passionately as you do and wear the G and you go to the games, you watch the games, yet you sit there in the seat like, right, right? And you're like, oh, touchdown, all right. Yeah, I mean, nobody does that, right? I mean, everybody's like excited, you're, you're pumped up. The crowd's going crazy. So why don't we do that for Jesus? You know, last week, the Edson family, who, who are newer to many of y'all, they were used to be here years ago, moved back. After the baptism, I love it, they stood up and just like started cheering the baptism. Some of you are like, oh, that's uncomfortable. Uh, no, you wouldn't say that's uncomfortable at a football game if they stood up and started cheering. You're like, man, awesome, they're fans. But, like, cheering baptism, like, oh, we're getting a little crazy in here, right? It's good. It's good to show emotion and affection for God. When God moves us and we love him, why would we not be affectionate and emotion, emotional toward him? And so some of you have never, ever, ever had an exciting moment about God in your life. There's a problem at the heart of your relationship, if that's the case. So... We want to make sure that we don't suppress the emotion. And then we don't attempt to follow God emotionally and intellectually also without what he says, loving with all your strength. What is that? It's active obedience, which requires action. That's like doing something, okay? That's, uh, it's making a difference. It's living life in a way where you're actually putting your faith into motion, into action. So Jesus not only told us the bullseye here, to love God, but then he says, hey, you're going to love him with action, and let's really put some, let's put some depth into that, because I can't just leave you with one thing, because these two things are tied in so closely together. He's like, to describe, I'm going to give you a bonus one here, because they go together. The second one, look at verse 31. The second one is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So when you love God, loving others is the natural response. That's what he's saying. When you love God with all your heart, all soul, your soul, your mind, and your strength, then loving your neighbor is a natural response. What does that mean, loving your neighbor? It means showing 
to all people the same respect and care that we show to ourselves. Showing the same respect and care for others that we show to our, for ourselves. Romans 13 really brings us home and, and just really shows why this is all about love. It's about a life a style of love. Love for God, love for others. Look at verse 8 through 10. It's on the screen. It says, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So he says, you want the bullseye? You don't know what the bullseye is? Love God with everything in you. All-encompassing, not compartmentalized on Sunday, not put into a corner of your life for certain uh, uh, times, Wednesday at K-Group or when you're around Christian friends, but he says, love me all the time with everything about you. And if you do that, if you begin to love me, you will love others. You'll love your neighbor. Don't attempt to move the bullseye. And it can be done so subtly. Man, I love theological knowledge. I love to learn about God. I love to know all these big words that, that we make up in order to put a system on our belief system, which those things are great. But you know what? It's not the bullseye. I love Grace Church, man. People are there are so great, and, and they're cool, and I love the music and the, and the songs we sing. Man, I, I love going to church, and that becomes the bullseye for you. Church can become, a great thing can become a bad thing. Emotional responses. Maybe some of you are very emotionally driven. You, you, you put on K-Love, and you're in the car, and you're like, oh, man, this is, you know, this is awesome, worshiping God. But we can make just that emotionalism really be more about our feeling than about God. Should we respond? Yes. As I said, it should be an emotional response, but it's not the bullseye. The bullseye is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So look at your love for a second. The most loving thing we can do for others is love God more than we love them. Do you realize that? I read that quote by Ed Welch. He wrote that in a book called When God is Small and People Are Big. That when we love God right, the most loving thing we can do is to love him with all our passion more than we love them. And when we get that correct, our love will begin to fall into place. We love God most, we'll love others the best. And so some of you are the action people. And so you, you want to jump in and start doing, 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 but you've got to love God first. That's the bullseye. And how we love others reveals how much we love God. Did you know that? The quality of our love reveals how much we love God. 1 John 4.20 He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So these all just interlock together. We love God, and as a result of loving God, we love our neighbors. We love people. We want to minister to people. We want to care for people. We desire it because why? We see that Jesus came first. We love, why? Because he first loved us. 
the gospel drives us. We see, God, you did this. You love. You are love. You, your very nature and essence is love. And you came for me. How could I not then love you in return and allow that just to burn within me a love for others? So look at the way that you love other people. Imagine if you went to the mechanic with your car because you're having trouble with it. It's making noise. It's really, really malfunctioning in a big way. And you go in and he says, oh, it's going to be about $500. You're like, well, I've got to get it fixed. Let me leave it here with you. And then you go back in a few days. They call and tell you it's ready. You go back. You write a check. Give them the $500. Swipe your card. Give them the $500. And you get your car and you drive it away. And instantly it just starts doing the same thing again. It's, it's doing what it was doing before. What would you do? Which probably has happened to all of us, right? What would you do? You would be like, well, did that guy even touch my car? Did he, did he, did he even look at my car? So that would be the first conclusion. Hey, he, he didn't do anything to this. He didn't look at it. Or he's very incompetent. He's not qualified. He's not reliable. There's no evidence that anything changed whatsoever in your car. And that's what we're getting at here and then what John talks about. The same can be said for a Christian life. Your love for others reveals how much you love God. Examine your love for others. John says, that's how much you love God. And so these, these, they fit hand in hand together. Love God, love others. God loved first, so I love in return. Not perfectly. I miss my cue a lot, don't you? I don't get it right a lot of times. But when we love God, there's just something in us that we want to love other people and love them well. I love Philippians says that he who began a good work in us will complete it. I remind myself that a lot because a lot of times I don't love people near as much as I love myself, and I'm sure you don't either. Verse 32 and 33, the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. Just kind of listen. It, it, I don't know this for sure, but it, it seems like he's almost patronizing Jesus here. He repeats back to him almost verbatim what Jesus said. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no one besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors oneself, it's much more uh, than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Good things that he said, but clearly Jesus, when he notes it, he says, you're, you're close, but you're not there yet, that there's something still missing. Now, we don't know for sure exactly why Jesus said that, but I, I think the reason was this guy was unwilling to leave all to follow Jesus. You can't fulfill the commands apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, the scribe could never adequately fulfill either one of these commands. You know, it, it was probably like Nicodemus in John 3, who was a Pharisee, a ruler, and what did he do? More than likely, he came to Jesus at night because he didn't want his buddies on the Sanhedrin to know what he was up to, what he was doing. He wanted to be stealth mode, go in, let me check this Jesus guy out. And we don't know whether he followed Jesus or not, but the same thing is true for the scribe. I mean, to follow Jesus, to really commit to be a disciple of Jesus, would have cost him everything. And so chances are, when verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said the right things, and he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God, he, he, he knew this guy did not have the humility to follow him and to give up everything to, to really be his disciple. So, bullseye. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? How do you love God with all your emotion, all your intellect, and one that's a little easier once we fill those in, the action part? How do we have a real relationship without simply making about just rules? Well, think about this for a second. This is one of those concepts where you can illustrate it, but it's really hard to define. But if you're married in here, you can probably relate to this. Imagine that you came to me before you were married for premarital counseling. And the husband, the man, had the nerve to ask, must I kiss my wife every night before we go to bed? What would the fiancé be thinking? She's like, really? You're, you're telling like, he's asking that question? Must I do that for real? That would be a, a shocker. Of course, you should do it, but it's not that kind of must, is it? Think about it, guys. Think about it, women. It's not that kind of must. You, it's something you should do, but it's, we know there's a difference between just going through the motions of duty or having a heart, having, ha- having emotion, having passion behind that. Even some days are more and some days are less. But we know that our wives, guys, we know they wouldn't go for the fact that just a mechanical every night, every, for 365 days, that wouldn't fly, would it? I mean, like, you don't love me. Well, I kissed you. Okay, right? If he thinks his only, his duty only relates to his external behavior of kissing, and in that, kissing his wife, he's done his duty, he doesn't understand love at all. And so Christian duty is deeper than just physical acts. Our duty is not only the external physical acts of living holy, self-sacrificing, but it's a right heart and a right disposition, a right set of affections and emotions directed in the right way toward God. So yes, it's a man's duty to kiss his wife, but it includes a duty of feeling affection for her. So the question is, do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you affectionate for God? What if you say, well, I don't really feel any affection for God, honestly. What do you do? Well, it's a good sign if you're in your heart, you're like, man, I want to feel affection for God. The first thing you need to do is humble yourself. Just humble yourself. Talk to God. Tell him, God, I don't love you, but I want to. God, I, I don't. I don't have affection for you. It's just, it's just purely going through the motions for me most of the time. Tell God that. A relationship, just like with your spouse, is more than duty. Should I, do, Pastor, do I have to spend time with God every day? Do I have to read my Bible I don't really understand it well I can tell you to read your Bible and you should read your Bible but if it's just your wife at night year day after day year after year there's a problem at the heart of your relationship there should be something there if you really know Jesus and then I love this I've shared this before said hundreds of years ago A lady wrote this. She said, Jesus, I don't love you, 
I don't even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. Maybe that's where you're at. That's a good place to be in too because there's a desire there. The Holy Spirit's stirring something in you and says, I want to want to love you, God. And then begin to spend time with God. Talk to God. Get to know him. As you grow in your affection for God, you can't help but to grow in your affection for those around you in real tangible ways. And in this, we thank God for his grace. Because we know, as long as we're human on this earth, we do like to feel and touch and engage our senses. That's, that's so important to us. And that's where the faith aspect comes in. Because we don't experience God the same way that we do experience our spouse or a child. But it's every bit of a real relationship. And if you're scratching your head on that, you need to talk to God and humble yourself today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the bullseye that we've been given here today. Thank you for putting on Stephen's heart to even uh, talk about that during the offering time. And God, as, as he said, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that, God, that you come uh, to us. You sought after us before we could respond to you because you knew that we were incapable of loving if you didn't first love us. And God, for anyone here who's really never truly had that account encounter with you, that they never really just give themselves over to you. Maybe they know, like the scribe, the right answers and says, they can say things that even seem impressive, but they're unwilling to just lay down their life, turn over their life, and by faith look to the cross and put their faith in what you did for them and accept your righteousness in exchange for their sin and believe in their, in their heart that you, rose, you raised Jesus from the dead. Scripture says they will be saved. And God, I pray today will be the day of salvation for some in here. And for Christians who have lost their first love, who've just lost the desire to know you, they had it at one point, and they just have just become apathetic. God, I pray you'll renew in them a desire to meet with you, to be with you, to be honest with you, and to confess their apathy, and to ask for a rekindling of that passion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.